Well, good morning, family. Jesus is alive. I, I, uh, we were in the back earlier. Um, the question came up, um, Pastor, do you, um, do you listen to the news? And the answer was, unfortunately, yes. And, uh, but then, then our, our conversation went around. It, it, it ended up kind of this. In spite of everything, Jesus is coming back. And uh, I'm, we, we, what we're seeing is obviously the unfolding of what God had said was going to happen in the last days. And uh, we're right in the middle of it. Well, we've been doing this study on Jesus and um, the name above every name, the name that every knee shall bow to and every tongue shall confess is Lord. And we, as we've been walking through this, we've been looking at different facets of who Jesus is and uh, discovering some things new and uh, getting deeper in our walk with God because we're, we're get, drawing closer to understanding him and in, uh, in who he is in our life. And today we're going to discover um, an aspect of Jesus, or we're going to look at an aspect of Jesus that um, that I'm just saying Jesus is passionate. He's passionate. And we're in a portion of scripture. You know, have you ever fantasized like if I was around in the time of Jesus, what it would be like? I have like my top, you know, events that I would want to have been there when it happened, you know, and watched it unfold. And this one is in my top 10. Not for the same reasons the others are. Just, I would just have liked to be there when Jesus was turning over the money changers and kicking and taking a whip and kicking people out of the temple. Now, that's just me. You know, I, I know some of you, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't impress you. But I love that about Jesus. Because there is actually um, a, a kind of a movement that is going around teaching that Jesus, well, Something we teach, Jesus is love, but then they add this, that Jesus never gets angry. He never gets angry. Well, they have a different Jesus than the real Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible got angry. And I am so grateful that he did get angry. Because a person who doesn't give, is, uh, is unable to be angry is a person who has no capacity to truly love. There is obviously a wrong kind of anger. But if you love, then an injustice to someone you love will produce what some call a righteous indignation, which is just a nice way of saying it, saying angry, angry. It's the right kind of anger, but that kind of anger is an anger that's produced out of a desire to protect and a desire uh, and a passion for that which is, uh, should be, there should be a passion for in, in our life. And uh, we see that here in the, the story of Jesus. What we see in this, and, and when we, we're really looking at Jesus at one time being angry, there's other portions too where he was angry, and, and we look through the entire Bible, we see God gets angry at, at different times. Um, 
what, what we don't see is that, that Jesus doesn't get angry at the way they treated him. He always got angry at the way that, you know, he was defending, in fact, the father's reputation and the house of God. And that's what's going on here. The scripture tells us to be angry, but don't sin. So there's a kind of anger. Usually it has to do with a selfish. So most of the anger that is produced in our life usually has to do with somebody frustrating us or frustrating something about what we want to have happen or things didn't go the way we wanted them to and we're angry about it. Um, that's not the kind of anger. That's not the, the situational anger that uh, is in, was in the heart of, of God and the heart of Jesus. What we see in Jesus is this passion. It's a passion. In this case, it's a passion for the Father's house. Let's take a look at it. It's in, in uh, John chapter 2 and verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It's, you, whenever you're going to Jerusalem, from, from wherever you are, it's always up. It's not that it's the highest point on the planet. It is the highest point you know, on earth in the, in, the, in the eyes of God in that way, because this is the place where God had specifically uh, determined to meet with man and the starting point. It isn't that God doesn't, it doesn't cover the earth, but it's that place. And it's the place where he will, re when Jesus comes back, he will return. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. Now what, let me give you kind of the, the picture of what he came to. When he came to the temple on the out, the, when you come to the temple area, there's the, the outer gates. There's a gate they call the gate of the, the area of the gates of the Gentiles. In which, if you were a Gentile who come to follow God, that's as close as you would come at that point. Now you came to worship God, and when you come into the area where you would worship God, there are these animals all around with whatever animals do in, in cage er, in an area, right? And so, and you have these tables out there where they're exchanging currency. When you came, and especially now because it says that it was at the Passover time, that tells us that, that there have been a lot of people. Usually in Jerusalem, there'd be about 100,000 somewhere, you know, give or take, uh, you know, 10,000 here and there. But, um, but then at the feast times, it would swell. And some say that it would swell up to about a million people. So people would be coming from all over the earth, all over the world, to come and worship God at the temple. And when they gathered there, um, they would, there would be responsibility. You have to pay a temple tax. And, uh, and so, and you, you bring your animal with you or you buy an animal. I mean, if you're going to, sometimes travel makes it impossible to bring your own animal, so you have to purchase an animal. And if you're going to pay the, pa uh, the temple tax, you can't do it in your, your homeland currency. You have to exchange it. So you go and get it exchanged. Well, the exchangers are right there at the temple. 
And what they what uh, we know is that they had a custom that they always, you know, there was always an exchange rate that went up whenever there were these feast days. When lots of people came, they took advantage of it. And they would make it harder on those who oftentimes did not have the resources to really afford that kind of thing. The other thing they did, and we know that they would be the ones they would inspect the animals that were brought. So the animal that you were sacrificing couldn't be lame. It couldn't have, a, you know, it couldn't have any um, flaws in it. It needed to be a healthy animal, and there were some, um, you know, some, some levels expected when you sacrificed to God. The thing is that these people were the ones who inspected and told you whether your animal was good enough. And it always seemed that they weren't good enough. So you would have to buy um, a, an animal there at the temple, a new one, you see? So you're, it's going to cost you. But they were so good that they would actually let you exchange your animal with a slight fee, and you could turn your animal in. They would take it. You wouldn't have to take it back. And, and, and now you could get this other animal at a little bit cheaper price. What you didn't know was that the animal you're buying is someone else's animal that was exchanged. I mean, there's things going on here that this is what Jesus is walking into. And when he sees it, obviously he, uh, he's angry because this is not the way it should be at, at the place of worship. This is not the way it should be at the house of God. And so, when he had made a whip, now, he made his own whip. (laughs) Uh, This is not like, all of a sudden, he is going to do some damage. He is making a whip. Now, I don't know what he's going to do fully with that whip, but he's going to make use of it. And he makes the whip, and uh, the scripture says, um, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured the money changers' money and overturned the tables. So he poured, he, he just, he, he got them, whipped them all out of there. He turned everything over. He is angry at what's going on. And you're not going to do this in my father's house. And it says, and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Do not make. I think that is a good lesson for the church. It really is a good. I was saddened. A young man that I had known posted. Um, he, had, he had been at our church at one time when he was young and then moved on and, and, uh, and posted about... Um, actually I think it was a friend he he just reposted where his friend had gone to a church where everything was about money in fact this friend posted that the church that they went to they would take an offering and if there wasn't enough they'd take another offering And and they said it wouldn't be uncommon for them to take four or five offerings waiting to hit their whatever goal it was I know you're shaking your heads. Is there such place like that? Other people actually chimed in and said, yeah, I was at a church like that. 
I was out of church. Jesus, I think, would be just as angry in that church as he was at the temple. That if that's what it's all about, I mean, there's a place for, you know, I mean, the, the, the temple, in fact, took in offering. Offerings was expected, and there was a place for that. But it wasn't supposed to be a place for money to be the most important thing in, in the church. It wasn't to be the thing to be worshipped. It is the thing that is to be used, not that people are used for it. And so, um, Jesus is really, is, is, uh, is really calling this out. Now, this um, account of Jesus going into the temple like this is found in all four of the Gospels. Uh, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke also have an account. And, and in the other accounts, the story is in is really right before the Passover when Jesus would give up his life. So he goes into the money into the temple right before he is crucified. And uh, and John's account is early in the account. Because it's in early in the account, some people believe that actually Jesus did this twice. Um, and debate about that I think is fair on both sides. And uh, and although I think my opinion is um, that this John just places it because John is not doing a chronological life of Jesus in the story. He's trying to pull out specific things that are important and place them in an order that helps you to understand who Jesus is. Something that we might do in our own life if we're giving kind of a, our storyline, we might jump from here to there and other times. Mostly we'll try to keep it chronological, but it's not necessary that everything's chronological. Um, Luke, on the other hand, does a chronological order intensively and intentionally, and he makes sure that everything's kind of lined up perfectly because that's his goal. See, he, he wanted to do a chronological order of the story of Jesus, but, um, but John doesn't. So my opinion is John is, is sticking something that happened later in Jesus' life here for a purpose uh, it, it, to help us to understand who Jesus was fully, that this God-man who we've been talking about, this, this, this miracle worker, it is one that also has this zeal for the house of the Lord. And he's given that to us early on. Now, um, some of you might think differently, and you could be wrong. Um, <laughs> but we can both be wrong, because I don't, I don't think you can be dogmatic on this. Some people believe that Jesus did it twice. I, the, one of the reasons why is because Matthew, Mark, and Luke both add that Jesus said, my father's house will be called a house of prayer, and, uh, and John doesn't. But that does, I, I don't think that's good enough evidence because different gospel writers leave out different things uh, in their story, and it's all of that that we get the whole picture of Jesus. So the, the point being here, and when Jesus did say that, I, I probably should address that. He, he he actually was quoting from Isaiah 56 himself where my father's house will be a house of prayer. 
because that was the heart of God, that this place where people would gather and, and bring glory to God and worship and the presence of God would be there, that that would be a place where we petition God. It would be a place of worship, but it would be a place of prayer. That we have to always remember that, you know, the, 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 the strength of the people of God is prayer. And it's prayer that changes the world. It's prayer that changes our lives. And it's a gift that God has given us. And when we meet God, uh, we, we have this privilege to talk to him and to entreat him and to give our hearts to him. So <clears throat> what is interesting is that there are all these money changers and all these connivers right at the house of God. The place of the present, of where the presence of God is manifest. They're right there. Callous to the, to the point that God is there. Callous to the, the call of God and to the holiness of God. And I don't think that changes much. You know, people, people can come to church and worship on Sunday and go home and, you know, and their life not be any different, you see, because they have been close to the presence of God. I, I actually know that because I remember, you know, I, I, before I came to Christ, I went, I, was, I, I went to Catholic church but I didn't really know the Lord, and uh, actually dealt drugs in the parking lot before church. You go to ch- and then go to church and have no conviction about that because my soul was dead. You see, I had a dead soul, and when you have a dead soul, I mean, you can be close to the presence of God, but if you don't allow the presence of God to touch your life. Well, there's no difference. It's just a religious activity. And the idea that, that I don't have to think about what, you know, what God is about, and that's what is going on here. And it says, then his disciples, verse 17, then his disciples remember that it was written, zeal or passion is also the way it's translated, for your house has eaten me up. Passion for your house now, this is that righteous indignation versus selfish anger that we talked about. So, <clears throat> this is the same Jesus who taught us to turn the other cheek. It's the same Jesus who taught us to blessed are the meek is now taking a whip in the temple. And this passion that he has for the temple to be a holy place where God's name is honored has not changed at all. Because remember, this was the Father's temple, but the difference is it's not a temple on a hill in Jerusalem anymore that his passion is directed toward. It's instead the temple of the Holy Spirit That's you and me. 
the scripture says that you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that God dwells in us. And that same passion to get the money changers out, that same passion to drive out the, uh, the sin in our lives, that same passion to make us the, the temple of God holy is still in the heart of Jesus. He has that same passion for our lives. And so when we can come to church and worship God and then go home and, and, uh, you know, and, and leave from here and instead live and sleep around and, and get drunk and live unholy lives, Jesus' passion has not stopped. Jesus is not okay with that in our lives. And his passion to make us holy was so severe that he was willing to go to the cross and die for our sins. But he didn't die just to forgive us of our sins so that we could be in right relationship with him. That was part of it. But he died on the cross also to transform us, to give us the power of transformed lives. Because he wants us to walk in a state of holiness in our life. Now, that gets twisted at times. In fact, um, this week I was, uh, in fact, yesterday, um, one of my grandchildren had a birthday and wanted to have the party at a bowling alley. And so we had a party at the bowling alley. And I was uh, talking, I was talking to Melissa. She was uh, about that. I, I said, when I first came to the church, I was actually taught um, that you didn't go to movies, movie theaters, or to bowling alleys, because if Jesus came while you were in a movie theater or a bowling alley, he wouldn't go there to pick you up. You'd be left. If Jesus came to rapture you, you'd be stuck, because Jesus is not going to go in a bowling alley and, and a theater. And I didn't understand that. You know, why, why bowling? It just didn't make sense. And, uh, and then someone said, well, because, see, <clears throat> in bowling alleys, they serve alcohol, and so you, you can't be in there. And, it was, and we laughed about it, because she grew up in, a, in a, uh, a, a, this little church that had this similar kind of teaching early on. And then we started talking about, how do you get there? And you get there, I think, because there is a... A, a knowing that we want to be holy. But unfortunately, we change what God says is holy and what we do, we start adding things to it, in my opinion, in order to feel more comfortable with our sin. Because here's what it is. You have a list of things that make you holy. You know, whatever it might be. You know, like, like that. I, the, the list changes at time. It's called legalism. And so, you know, I, so someone probably at some point went into a bowling alley, came back out, and said to their church, oh, it was horrible. There were people were smoking and drinking, and, you know, this was back then. And, and, uh, and they still do that, but, um, except for the smoking part, probably. But, um, but they're, 
and they're, and they says, and I, I felt the conviction of the Lord, and I am not going back, which they probably did. Maybe there was a temptation in their heart. So then, the, 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 what is right and wrong was changed from whatever it is to, you know, one of the things is you don't go to bowling alleys. And that got on the list. And so the list grows as people do this. But here's the thing, the problem with the list. What happens is religious people then look at the list and go, I don't go to movie theaters. I don't go to bowling alleys. I don't go to, you know, liquor stores or supermarkets because they sell liquor. Uh, No, that contradiction never got in there. Um, But they go down this list and then they go, you know, but what about you? Oh, I heard you bowl. I heard, I heard you go to billiards. See, and now you see, now the judgment of what is righteous is based upon this false list. So the person who holds to it can feel really good about themselves. It's self righteousness, but they never have to really look at their heart. And Jesus was always about going deeper, wasn't he? He he wasn't about the externals. He was always saying, but I say unto you, you know, and his I say unto you had to do more with attitude and, and, uh, and heart issues and all of that, you know, related to the action. It wasn't just the action. It was beyond that. So that our self-evaluation is based upon what Jesus, what the heart of God is and the desire of God is further. It's, it's, it's not just what we don't do, but what we do do and how we love people and how we, we love God and, and all of that. And this list, which is a false list and a list that can make us feel really great about ourselves because actually as, as legalism goes, it's usually pretty easy to do. I mean, maybe I give up bowling. You know, that's a lot easier than really looking at my heart issues, the motives of my heart, how I deal with people. That's something that's, that, that's deeper in my life. And so this issue of holiness, it really is an issue that is between us and God, but I am absolutely surprised and heartbroken over how many will, would, will acknowledge and, and acknowledge that when they come to church is about the only time they, they live anything holy. That they come to church, it's kind of like, well, church is a place to get, get it right, and then I go out and I just do whatever I want, irregardless of what God has said. And that your temple is not, is not, it's not, taken and treated as it's supposed to be treated. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the, and, and, and the Lord confronts that passionately because he is still cleansing temples. He desires to cleanse your temple. He desires to cleanse your soul. And, and the assumption that while Jesus died on the cross, so my sins are forgiven, and that's just great. I don't, he didn't care what else I do. 
he got pretty, pretty angry at the money changers because that was their attitude. I've sacrificed my animal. My animal's been sacrificed. I'm covered. I'm good. But holiness is different. Holiness is, it's separated under God. That's what holy, something that is holy is separated under God. So furniture can be holy. Probably not in your front room. But it, does, it was in the temple of God. It was holy. Temple of God had furniture. You had tables and, you know, and, and things that were there. Uh, lamp, lamps. A lamp in the temple was holy. Why was it holy? Because it was, separate, it was separated unto God. It was for the purpose of God's use. Now, if when the priests were done with, you know, whatever uh, priestly activities they did that day, and they took the table of showbread and took it out, and then they started, you know, like playing cards on it, or not that cards are evil, but it's, it, it, they, they, they started to use it as a, a bar table, or, or they, they were using it for something other than the purpose, then it was then something that was holy is not holy now. And so, but we're supposed to be holy. Say, well, does that mean that I am like confined to only religious things to be holy? Not at all. But whatever you do, eat, drink, live your life, do all for the glory of God. You can do that. You can do that. And when we don't, it's sin. And we need to be purified. And Jesus is the only one that can make that transformation in our life. And, and we need to repent. We need to ask God to forgiveness because only in repentance do we break into freedom. If you, ne- if you do not repent, You'll never be free. That's how it happens. It, in verse 18, it says this. You know, we, I just need, feel led by the Lord right now just to stop and pray. And Father, I pray. I, I know that there are people, even as we talk this, that your con- the conviction of your Holy Spirit, because sometimes we... All of us probably at times in our life, we have certainly been um, kind of flippant about what it means to be temples of the Holy Spirit. There are times not only do we forget that that's a reality, but there's times that we have, and Lord, um, even walk knowing it in rebellion, just thinking, well, I'll just do this and God will forgive me, it'll be fine. And that, Lord, I pray that you would cause our hearts to be grieved over those things, not in order to be stuck in guilt, but in order to be freed unto righteousness. That, Lord, we would respond to you in love and just say, God, my loving Savior, cleanse my soul. Forgive me of my sin. Lord, help me to have the same passion you do for the house of God.
verse 18. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Like, what, what gives you the authority to do this stuff? I think they asked that question because they didn't want to repent. They knew it was wrong. But, you know, you, you side, sometimes the, uh, theological questions get asked not because people are really inquisitive or really want to kind of define things. Sometimes theological questions are asked to postpone repentance. And that's what's going on here. So what gives you the right? How do we know you're right? They knew he was right. But, and and they, they wanted to see a miracle. They, wanted to see, they, they knew that they were wrong, but they wanted to see a miracle. They wanted to postpone things. They wanted him to prove himself. And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it up. <laughs> then the Jews said, it has, been, it has taken 46 years. And by the way, it would take many, many more years after. They weren't done with the temple until it was destroyed. 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the, uh, and the word which Jesus has said. And I think there's a reason why John adds that they believed and they remembered because something was about to be revealed here in verse 23 it says now when he was um, now when he was in Jerusalem uh, at Passover during the feast many believed in his name and when they saw the signs which he did so Jesus is doing miracles here and, and says but Jesus did not commit himself to them. He didn't entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all men. Now, they be- it says they believe. Why they believe? Because they saw the signs. I, I, I know you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever seen a miracle? Just, you know, just saw a miracle. What did that do for your faith? How many of you? How many of you came to Christ because you saw a miracle? Okay. There is a faith that comes by seeing a miracle, but I believe actually miracles are more likely to cause a desire for faith than producing faith. That, that miracles are great and they get us started, but not everybody even sees a miracle genuinely. But look at all the religious leaders that saw Jesus do miracles. They saw it. It didn't, it didn't change their life. In fact, many, a time, many times, they, they saw Lazarus was raised from the dead and they even got, that was really was, ticked them up, ticked them off enough to go, let's kill him. Let's kill Jesus, you know. Because he rose someone from death. So miracles do not always produce faith, but sometimes they do. But I don't believe they produce the kind of faith 
that Jesus was willing to commit himself to. That's what it says here. He knew what was in them. I was thinking of the story, of, you know, when Jesus rose from the dead, remember, all the, he appeared to the disciples and they saw him and they knew that he had risen from the dead, except for one, he was missing. You know, I don't want to be missing when Jesus shows up. So Thomas was missing. That was one day he decided he was uh, leaving town on, uh, you know, on that week. He was going on vacation, and, uh, and Jesus showed up. Just kidding, you can go on vacation, and Jesus can show up at your house. But just sometimes Jesus shows up when we, I'll just pass on that. <laughs> Thomas isn't there. And the disciples say, hey, we saw Jesus. And he says, I don't believe it. That's why he's referred to as Doubting Thomas. It's, it might, it's an unfortunate designation. But he says, unless I see, you know, the pierced hands and feet, you know, see the, the pierced sides. Unless I see that, I won't believe. And so Jesus shows up. And of course, as he sees it, he falls down. And uh, John chapter 20, verse 28 says, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, which is a proper response. And Jesus then said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Now that's okay. I mean, if you saw a miracle and it helps your faith, that's great. That's okay. Not downing it. But then he adds there's a different level of faith. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Because there's a faith that trusts the word of God. Now, a person who has started off by seeing a miracle can go right into that faith too. Not limited, but but faith that's just based upon a miracle. Let me tell you why that even can be dangerous. The Bible says in the last days, the Antichrist, the the, the false prophet will do miracles. They're satanic miracles. There's deceptions that, 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 that come. They, they were supportive proof of Jesus being the Messiah. And they're wonderful when God reveals himself that way. We all desire that. But they do not produce the deep, seated faith that can only come from the trust in God's word itself. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so you can jump and run for every, you know, miracle service or whatever to try to see that and you're hoping to see more miracles because quite frankly, if you're doing that, it's because your faith probably needs a boost and you're trying to get it that way but you can get that kind of faith boost if you get into his word and you trust what he says and you can find that kind of deep faith grow in your life at a much better level, faster level, deeper level. And then the miracles are icing on the cake, right? They're okay, they're good. Remember, 
The people that Jesus said had great faith, they trusted his word. They trusted his word. So Jesus said this in John 5. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, that was Bible, how, how will you believe my words? So it's in trust in God's words. Now, many of these people who were believing at this time, somewhere down the road, many of them would be the same ones crying out, crucify him. Not sustaining kind of faith. Ask the worship team to come on up. As I've prayed for this service, I'm believing that there, there is going to be a life, dramatic, life-changing experience that is happening in some people's lives. And that some of you have been, your, your house is, you've been a hoarder. You ever watch those shows where they just buy, I mean, the house is stacked to the top. There's rats all around. There's poop all around. That's your, your house. Not at home, maybe. I'm talking about your soul. I'm talking about the temple. It's not been cleaned up. You've allowed a lot of things to go on. And it's, it's time for a house cleaning. And the good thing is, you don't have to do it on your own. Jesus loves coming in and turning over things and driving out things in your life. And if you'll invite him openly, without resistance, in full surrender, say, Lord, here I am. I'm open, cleanse my soul, clean my house. Clean my life. Lord, I give it over to you. Have access to any point and drive out the things that are unpleasing to you, I pray. Lord Jesus, I pray. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. While we worship, the ushers are going to be handing out the uh, communion elements. If you would like to take communion with them, receive them, hold them, and then we'll take communion together, okay?
amazing love that welcomes me the kindness of mercy that bought with blood wholeheartedly my soul undeserving God you're so good oh God you're so good my God you're so good you're so good to Sing that chorus. represented this perfect sinless person sacrifice and he broke it and he said this is my body which is given for you of the new covenant of my blood as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup you show the Lord's death until he comes thank you Jesus for forgiveness of sins for cleansing this temple receive 
You're so good. 